0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. 19,000 hours of HSR services about to disappear as City Council chips away at the 2020 operating budget. What kind of impact is that going to have? Ontario is not renewing the government funding for the 42 rape crisis centers in the province. What kind of impact is that going to have for wait times for survivors? And with the leadership race for the Democrats winding down, well, the candidates especially are winding down, fears of a repeat of the 2016 election for the Democrats... We'll explain it in just a couple of minutes. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Hamilton City Council getting down to the uh, short strokes, I guess, about the, uh, the budget for 2020. They ha- hope to have that done in the next couple of weeks. But uh, as we've talked about, because of the budget pressures and because of uh, Council's direction to try to lower the tax rate for most of us, uh, they've had to make some pretty difficult decisions. One of them had to do with transit, and it's got a number of people, you know, furor about reducing uh, some of the routes. And uh, Chad Collins, Ward Five Councilor, is going to join us uh, to talk about that and the explanation why. Uh, Chad, first of all, thanks for joining us. Busy da- time for you guys. I appreciate you making some time for us this morning.
1: Thanks for having me on this morning, Bill.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the decision about what you did with the bus service. I mean, because and I see, I'm sure you've seen some of the f- pushback on this on social media. But give give us the background on this.
1: Well, we're, we're looking, as you stated just in your opening there, we're, we're looking for ways and means in which to reduce the budget. And Hamilton has done a tremendous job in the last uh, almost decade. So the last nine years, we've had a 1.9% uh, budget increase. We know around the council table um, that there's an affordability issue in the community as it relates to how much people can afford to pay uh, for these increases uh, year after year. And so, through the last several months, um, you know, we've been looking for ways and means in which to whittle that budget number down to something that's more palatable for the community. And we started, um, you know, we were in the four or five percent range when we started this, and and now we're almost under that three percent level. Which, um, uh, you know, the the budget the clock is is ticking, and we have uh, we're in the final weeks now. We have to have it finalized by the, the start of April. So, the last several weeks. And, you know, you and I have had a number of different discussions, Bill, about ways and means in which to bring the budget down and what services we'd, we'd like to and in, in further invest in and those where we may uh, find some opportunities for savings. And yesterday's debate centered around underperforming HSR routes and staff presented a, a chart of those routes where we have essentially, in some cases, almost empty buses traveling the streets at certain times of the day. And um, they, they showed us quite clearly that, um, you know, with the traffic counts, uh, and, sorry, passenger counts that we have, and we have new technology that we've utilized over the last two years that essentially can, uh, can electronically track every single person that gets on and off the bus. So previously, in prior years, it's always been kind of a guess because we were using fares and tickets and those types of things to try to determine how many people are getting on and off the bus, and now we have an exact count. So this technology has proved quite useful, and it's been used right now to determine where and at what times of the day we have uh, some routes that would be considered, and this is the term that was on our sheet, underperforming. And so that's essentially what we looked at yesterday. There were routes all over the city that were examined, and in some cases, you know, at the end of the day, we had two or three people that were using the bus uh, in, in its final two, uh, one or two hours. Uh, in other cases, um, you know, we had uh, overlap of bus routes. We had... Two or three buses running on the same stretch, and so to take a bus off the system, um, you know, wouldn't cause any, conven- any inconvenience. And of course, Councillor Jackson presented the scenario where many years ago he had worked to enhance the bus service to the Quad Pad Arena, and uh, we just found that the usage there was very was quite low. And so the-, the modification that was made yesterday was to continue to offer it on weekends, when we we uh, noticed that the traffic was uh, was higher than the rest of the week. And so those are the modifications that we made. I think we're looking at about seven dollars to $800,000 for the rest of this calendar year. And then fully implemented next year, it'll be a $1.7 or $1.8 million savings to the corporation. And that helps us get below that 3% range. We're at 3 now. We'll need to make some changes over the next couple of weeks to get it a bit lower. But that's essentially the debate we had yesterday. and um, And it was well received by Council and uh, almost almost unanimous support
0: yeah I think two voted against it uh, uh now so you track this all the time i guess the, when, when you look at the data and and the analytics that you're able to uh, get now because of the the new technology that you're using uh this assessment as to who's on the bus and and how often these buses are being used and by whom uh, that's something hsi should be doing on a continual basis anyway isn't it i mean what if, if these are underperforming wouldn't they have already told you about that
1: It is. It is something. And as I think, as was noted yesterday, we're going through that re-envision campaign. And so they are looking right now, not just at passenger passenger counts on buses, but they're also looking at all the routes. They're also looking at bus stops and where they're located. And, you know, many of our routes are historical routes that would have been first introduced many, many decades ago. And of course, we all know that the city has grown um, in different ways over the last uh, several decades. We know that employment patterns have changed in terms of you know, the lower city industrial area at one point in time would have employed tens of thousands of more people than it does today. And um, and we know we know have, we have new business parks in different areas of the city. Certainly the airport has grown tremendously over the last two decades. So the re-envision campaign, uh, to answer your question, Bill, is, is essentially looking at everything to do with HSR and looking at uh, are there ways and means in which we should tweak the service and or make investments in, in other areas? And we'll know sometime later this year, we'll get a a good look at at, uh, some of the changes that are being proposed by staff, and it'll include all of those things. And so this was kind of an early briefing on some of the stats that staff had. We were, you know, we're in a budget crunch. And so we said, look, if you have any preliminary information to provide us, we'd like to see it now. And if there are opportunities for savings, we'd like to take advantage of those right now. It's on top of, don't forget, and you and I have talked about this uh, for, uh, several times this budget session, we've made historic investments in transit. So this, you know, may be perceived by some people as we're reducing service, but we are investing this year in over a 10-year period, as you know, with our transit plan, a record amount of additional HSR service. And so this year alone, half a percent of that three that I just referenced that we're passing on to ratepayers is directly attributed to enhancements to the HSR. That includes. You know, millions and millions of dollars in capital purchases as it relates to new buses. It also includes the hiring of additional bus drivers. So it is one of the, I think, um, air only areas of the organization, transit and housing, um, where we're starting to invest more at a time when we're trying to certainly understand that there's, um, there, there's a need for some fiscal restraint in other areas. And so it's a balancing act. So and transit, transit's transit been a beneficiary of that balancing act.
0: Okay, but what are the the consumers, in other words, the passengers, <clears throat> excuse me, mm-hmm. going to notice? I mean, uh, for somebody who's going to be on one of these routes that's being impacted right now, yep. uh, are there going to be no buses? Are there going to be fewer buses? I mean, uh, you know, I, I can still remember the old days going back and forth when my college days. I mean, God help anybody who wanted to get a bus on a Sunday on a lot of these routes, because they only came like once every 45 minutes or something. Is mm-hmm. that what we're looking at now?
1: Yeah, that was a great question, Bill, because it was asked yesterday, you know, are, are are we eliminating any routes? And the answer is no.
0: And so essentially it's um,
1: changing the patterns as it relates to, um, you know, possibly cutting the last bus of the run on on a, on a particular day of the week. It could be a weekend. It could be during the week, a weekday, where we're finding we just don't have the passenger loads to justify the expenditure. And so, it, it, or it may mean in some circumstances, uh, people are waiting an extra two minutes to get on a certain route because a, a bus has been taken off of the route. So those are the kinds of changes. It's essentially tweaking the system rather than overhaul, overhauling the system or making uh, large substantive changes that the, the consumer or the customer is going to is going to feel.
0: Now, one of the debates that council has always had when it comes to, to public transit, especially Chad, uh, is the. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you how do you grow ridership and and uh, I know some people have already weighed in on this and say look when you start doing this you're not going to reduce you're going to reduce ridership you're not going to enhance it and it seems counterproductive to your long term goal of trying to get more people on public transit
1: yeah and I, I would point in response to two things one we still have some of the lowest fares in the province of Ontario um, especially for seniors our seniors bus pass you know our staff every year show us what other communities are doing. And for seniors, including our Golden Age Pass, which is a free pass for people over 80, um, th- we have some of the, the most generous fare systems in, in all of Ontario. It's been one of the fears that we've had in terms of this whole conversation about uh, a greater Toronto Hamilton transit system. If we get sucked into that system, we could probably see our fares going much higher than they are because right now they're they're a lot lower than others. And so keeping those fares low... Um, attract uh, and and ensure that we're not turning people off of a conventional transit system and we're actually encouraging them to use the transit system. And the other one is the 10-year transit strategy. We are putting tens of thousands of of additional hours on the street and, and we're increasing the service times on almost every single route as well as introducing new routes in new areas of the city. And that we're halfway through that plan, and so I think the proof is in the pudding that uh, f- you know for the last five years, council has consistently supported that plan. And to be fair, you know these—it's following federal investments that have been made. So the the federal government has provided resources to municipalities. We're taking advantage of that, and one of the requirements is that you you don't just get these resources for free; you have to have some skin in the game. And they're requiring municipalities who take advantage of those federal grants. To actually kick in from a capital perspective and an operating perspective, and Hamilton's done that. And I would point back to that half a percent on this year's tax bill that can be directly attributed to transit investment. And so, for those people who are, who are critical of these moves, I, I I think and and I have to give credit to Councillor Ferguson who's leading the charge on this. Um, you know, we're, we're we're making sound business decisions. We're we're looking at areas that are underperforming, and I think the proof is in the pudding that when the budget process is over we will have more transit far more transit on the street at the end of this month and through the course of this year than we did starting January 1st of this year.
0: So this is this going to have any impact at all on staffing? Uh, no, I don't I don't believe there is a there is an
1: impact. In fact, we we'll, we still plan to to hire new drivers this year as a result of the transit plan. So no impact on staff. This is essentially um, you know taking a bus off of a route um, off of several routes at certain times of the day so there's you know there's no i don't think there's any impact on the union and uh, there won't be any impact on ftes of course we continue to make changes in the organization there will be staffing implications in other areas of the organization but to directly into your question bill with hsr no Uh,
0: but where does that bus go i mean if you're going to take it off a route early is is it going on to another route does that does that driver go home what happens here
1: Well, I think that's that's exactly part. It'll be I believe it'll be part of the, the the new transit investments that we're making as part of the 10 year strategy. So as we put those new hours on the road in different areas, it just means reallocating those resources, whether it be equipment and in this case a bus or the driver to different routes.
0: And and this this is in keeping, uh, uh, from what I hear, the comments from you and some of your fellow councillors, this is in keeping with the, the the transit policy. In other words, you're not doing it about a face, as some people are suggesting. Correct.
1: Yeah, and I, and I would say, Bill, that, um, you know, it's, it's an early, I think we're getting an early glimpse in terms of what re-envision is looking at, and that is essentially looking at where do we make these strategic investments in the future, where do we reallocate resources in some cases where we're underperforming. And you know, it just we we hear it all the time. And I, you know, I you, you served on council for a while. When people see these inefficiencies on the street, whether it's with transit or others, they call us and they let us know. And so, you know, Councillor Ferguson's the first one to say, you know, I've received a call from someone in Ancaster and they're tired of seeing an empty bus through the through the the municipality at this you know at this time of the day or this day of the week. And so, it's really getting at those those issues where we have one or two people. Riding a bus for for you know the last two hours of the of the day, and looking at better ways in which to reinvest those resources elsewhere, or in this case, capitalizing on those inefficiencies to pass along some savings to the
0: ratepayer. Right now I'm I'm looking at uh, the the numbers here you got from staff. You mentioned about a seven to eight hundred thousand dollars saving this year for the remainder of this year, anyway. Yeah. Uh, but they also projected into 2021. Uh, so is that? From that, do we assume that this is going to be the new normal now? That the, 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 once the route has been designated as underperforming, it's going to stay that way?
1: Yeah, so when, when because we're into the year now and these, these routes have been established for, they have a scheduling system, a boarding system that, um, that they use, and um, we need to make these changes by a certain date this spring in order to implement them for the summer months. So that's why we're only getting a half a year's worth of savings with these changes that we're making. Once they're fully implemented in the summer, of course, we'll then achieve a full year's worth of annualized savings next year. And so the, the, I believe it was 700000 or so uh, for this year because we're getting it, the savings from June to December. Once you analyze that, we'll probably get $1.4 to $1.5 million worth of savings for 2021. So we, we have some additional savings to look forward to. Um, as we start planning for the twenty one twenty twenty one budget process, which seems hard to believe that we're even talking about that right now in in the month of March.
0: All right. And when do these things take effect? It, it'll be June bill. I believe
1: it's June or, okay. or July for most of these uh, for most of these routes. and um yeah, and 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 we of course, we continue to work on the budget for the rest of the this month, and hopefully by, the 1st of april we we'll have a tax rate that's in the 2% range and and uh, again we're we're already, we're looking at 2021
0: in that period of time and as you say we're not you know getting down to the short strokes here uh, yeah. that gives you about two and a half three weeks to get this thing done uh, and you've still got a significant amount of money to, to cut out of this budget you go yeah but 2 wait 2.9 right now and you want to get it down to closer to 2
1: we're at uh, we're at 3 right now okay so yesterday we started at 3.1 with the changes we made um, we it's taken us down to uh, to, to three, and uh, you know we're we're hoping to get into the twos, and we'll see how how far we can we can get into the twos. Last year was two point five. Uh, this year looks like we're going to be in the high twos. And for every percent, just as a reminder, Bill, every percent on the tax bill is worth about nine million dollars in, um, in in costs. And so you know, yesterday's yesterday's savings with the HSR, you know, and it, and it's a big change. Only brought us 0.1 percent reduction on the tax bill.
0: So between now and the end of the month, when you guys have to get this thing put to bed, uh, can we anticipate there'll be more? I guess further reductions now, for and maybe even further uh, service level reductions.
1: Yeah, there will be definitely. I mean, any any time we're taking something out of the budget, we're we're affecting service, and so it, it, I can say that it won't be HSR, but there will be other areas of the organization that will be impacted, and um, you know what that what that is remains to be seen, but. I know that there's there's an active discussion right now uh, over the next three weeks to talk about where in the organization do we find these savings, and does that mean does that mean um, a reduction in staff, or does that mean just a reduction in materials and supplies? And so those are the kinds of conversations that we're having right now,
0: uh, and we'll talk about those as they come up. I guess Chad, as always, thanks for the time, appreciate it today. Thanks, Bill Ward Five, Councilor Chad Collins.
2: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show Podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Follow-up to a story we carried a couple of months ago about uh, rape crisis centers and uh, the problem that they had uh, with funding. Of course, that's been an ongoing problem. Last year, uh, the Ford government did allocate a million dollars for rape crisis centers, uh, but they said it was a one-time thing and there was no guarantee that it was going to be renewed. But there was hope that uh, because of the positive impact that that money had, that the government would see its way to get uh, the money to them. Well, apparently not. Uh, The government has now announced, uh, the Ford government has announced, that uh, the 42 rape crisis centers that uh, got that million dollars are not going to get that money this year. And that's obviously fueling concerns about increased wait times once again. And a companion study, by the way, from CBC uh, suggesting that uh, cr- rape crisis centers right across the country are in very dire straits right now because of lack of funding, and in some cases are actually turning victims away because there's just no room for them. Joining us to talk about the impact is Catherine Gibbons of uh, Savas-Halton, uh, who's going to talk to us about the uh, the impact that the, the good money had and, of course, what's going to happen after this. Uh, Catherine, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today.
3: Yes, thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, it's bad news, and this, this is going to have an impact on all of these centers, isn't it?
3: Absolutely. It is um, quite bad news, and the impact is definitely going to be felt at all rape crisis centers and sexual assault centers across Ontario.
0: Uh, Let's talk about how this is going to happen. We'll crunch some numbers here, because we've always had some concerns about... uh, Wait times for service and people that uh, that are seeking your help, uh, those numbers are increasing, sadly, for a whole lot of reasons that we can probably get into in a couple of minutes. But there was a significant reduction uh, in wait times once this money became available last year, wasn't there?
3: Yeah, this money really did increase, um, at our specifically at Savasipalton, it really did increase our capacity. It helped us bring our wait times down by at least four months because we were able to hire an additional staff member. So that staff member was um, a counsellor. They could help do one-on-one counselling. They could also do drop-in services. They also ran groups. Um, So without that funding, it really does translate to losing staff. And our wait time list, just to give you a picture of how it's going to impact survivors in the community, our wait time for right now, we're sitting at four to five months. With this cut, our wait time is gonna go up to 10 months.
0: And and that's by the way there are that's that seems to be about the averages. I'm looking at some of these numbers here. I know before that money became available last year, the wait times in some places were up to eighteen months. And you're right, it did yeah. get down to about six. But uh, we're we're taking some backward steps here, aren't we?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really upsetting just because as after the Me Too, or I should say during the Me Too movement, and period we're in now, the stigma around sexual assault and being able to reach out and ask for help um, and to come forward with allegations, that stigma has really been transformed. So more people are coming forward, more people are in need of services, but if we don't have more funding or more support from the government in how we facilitate and offer those services, we just aren't simply aren't able to meet the demand.
0: So what happens to those people?
3: So those folks... Um, For people who are already accessing services, we are, of course, going to finish the services, but it's going to be scheduling less clients, giving um, people who are contacting us for the first time a longer estimate for how long they're going to be waiting. We're going to have to start wrapping up some of the groups that we've been running.
0: I mean, I've seen some anecdotal information uh, from some of the other studies that have been done that uh, uh, in some cases there's just no room for them. I mean, there may be an initial intake where they have some discussion for them. But that period of time that you're talking about, that six to ten months, uh, you know, the, the question, I guess a lot of people who are v- being victimized by this uh, are going to say, where do I go? Do I go back home to the abusive situation because there's no other place that I can put a roof over my head? And kids are involved in this oftentimes, too.
3: Yeah, absolutely. We do support youth at our center. Um, So it it is very frustrating and it's very upsetting because when someone calls in, they're being incredibly vulnerable, they're being incredibly brave, and they're really saying, I do need support. Um, This happened to me. Uh, It was out of my control, and I need support to help navigate this. And it's so frustrating as a service provider um, to be able to say, well, we could help you, but right now we simply don't have the capacity to meet your needs, and you're going to have to wait.
0: I mean, this is akin, and I hope you know people listening to this never have to access this service. But sadly, more and more people are having to because of what's going on. Uh, it's it's like going to a hospital, with, you know, when you've got an injury, and they say, "Sorry, we can't we can't serve you. Go away." Uh, and and I know that it breaks your heart, but how difficult must that be for the victim, uh, who, as you said, has to go through a very very difficult process and decision making process to decide, "I got I got to get out of here." And they they go to a place like like you we're offering here. And and the answer is well we can't do much for you that's that's a, yeah. that's, that's got to just not just break their heart it's got it it kills hope
3: absolutely and it does have serious ramifications a lot of times when someone calls in um, and we do an intake with them that might be their first disclosure to anyone that they've experienced sexual violence and when the response is thank you so much for sharing. Um, we're going to give you a call in about 10 months. That can be very isolating for survivors, and that really isn't the way that it should be. Um, It's quite quite frustrating and upsetting to, to have to not turn survivors away, but tell them, that they are going to have to wait for services because that time is so isolating. We do have a crisis line number that, of course, we give out to survivors, but that's very different from accessing our one-on-one counseling.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and again, it raises the question to the to the the victim: the, the, Where do I go? What do I do? Uh, I mean, yeah. once you once you make that call and, and access that and make that decision. Uh, you don't want to go back to the situation where you've been abused or sexually abused and anything like that. So, you know, do you, do you, you know, start couch surfing? I mean, there's a, there's a number of problems at hand here, and, part, and it all ties in. I mean, we've talked about this in the past uh, with you and with Alma uh, at SAVIS. Uh, housing is a problem here, affordable housing, uh, and, and, of course, access to services such as this. Uh, and you've presented your case. I mean, you as an organization, not just SAVIS, but of the 42 uh, centers in Ontario, I thought it presented a, a legitimate case and I think a very transparent case about what this money has done and how good it is. That's why I, it was just kind of mind-boggling that the government would just simply say, no, you're not getting the money this year.
3: Mm-hmm. It's really upsetting because, like I said, in a time where more and more survivors are coming forward, we're starting as a society to have conversations about sexual violence. Uh, the journeys of healing that people have to go on for the government to eliminate that funding really feels like they're turning their back on survivors of sexual violence.
0: So where do you go from here? I mean, there's, there's, there's no recourse here. You can't go back to the government and ask them to reconsider. Uh, you've, you've just got to learn to deal with this, I guess.
3: Yeah, for us, this means that we're really going to try um, and fundraise ourselves to be able to fill in some of the funds that we've lost We really don't, like, want to experience this cut. This cut for us is going to be detrimental, and it's going to have a massive impact on our community and on survivors. So from here, we're going to start um, fundraising initiatives. We're going to start seeking other funders um, and hoping that we'll be able to at least fill some of that gap.
0: Because the numbers aren't going to go away. I mean, those you know, those, those, yeah. that help is still necessary, and and you're providing such a key service to the community here, especially people that are probably at one of the most vulnerable stages of their life.
3: Yeah, absolutely. The demand continues to grow, and if we don't have the funds to have our capacity match that demand, at the end of the day, folks are going to be left isolated. They're not going to be supported simply because we don't have the staff capacity to do so
0: well it's a uh, it's a it's an danger i mean you're putting people in danger not you but i mean the government by not doing this you yeah. when not services are not going to be available anymore uh that, that 8 to 10 month period and it might be longer in some cases depending on which uh, shelter they try to access uh you know there's there's a possibility of uh, of of you know the, the perpetrator uh, you know taking a vengeance out on them i mean there's some pretty ugly scenarios that can develop here and because yeah, we've we've seen these in the past mhm absolutely so
3: It is a very unfortunate decision that has been made and I think it's important to remember that this impacts not just folks in our community, this is across Ontario. Sexual assault centres are dependent on government funding to be operational. Um, Some sexual assault centres across Ontario only have two paid staff, right, because the funding is divided based on size of community and demand. Um, So for folks who are in rural or northern Ontario, this might mean that they're losing half their staff capacity.
0: What are the ramifications now for somebody who's been victimized by this and and, and when they they hear this story today and and they're thinking I've got to get some help, but the help may or may not be there. Uh, I, I'm concerned I guess that what could happen here, Catherine, is a lot of people that probably should be accessing the service are not even going to bother to try because they realize that it's 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 going to take so long to try to get in.
3: Yeah. And it, it doesn't send a good message um, on a government level that we hear that there's a demand. We've seen, we've seen the demand. We've seen Me Too. We've seen Time's Up. Uh, sexual assault centers have been very vocal about the work that they've been doing with this funding, vocal about the number of folks we've supported. Um, so for them to cut this funding, it is so isolating, and it is going to have serious ramifications for survivors of sexual violence.
0: So uh, with that in mind then is, is uh, and again, your association is, is a, a strong voice in this. Uh, do you try to petition the government notwithstanding the fact that they've already made the decision? Uh, I mean the reality here is that they have uh, they have recanted some of the other policy decisions they made because of the pushback they got from community.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean, we are always hopeful that they might reverse this decision. Uh, the way it was announced, it did seem very final, um, but that is always an option. If enough noise is made, if enough people are writing letters, if enough media interviews are given, um, if enough pressure is put on, there's always the possibility that they could, in fact, reverse this decision.
0: Uh, I mean, the government's doing their own spin on this anyway, suggesting that, well, they've already funded this stuff. But, I mean, that's 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 old numbers that, that they're throwing back at us. You know, they say the government's delivered yeah. on is guaranteed to maintain funding to the Ministry of the Attorney General's victim services programs, which include sexual assault centers. Uh, at $60.2 million as part of our commitment. Mm-hmm. That's the government talking here. Uh, but the reality here is that that's not enough money. And they know it's not enough money because they, they had to top it up last year with this extra million dollars. And so now they're simply saying, mm-hmm. we're going to give you the money that we you, you got, usually get, realizing what the, it's going to have, the impact here it's going to have, what's it's going to extend services. You're going to lose staff. which means People are going to have, well, the caseloads are going to increase, obviously, for the staff that are mm-hmm. left um uh, and th- this is there's a spiraling downward effect here that's going to happen here but that, this is the government's response to it and the way that they try to spin numbers here i mean you know they they talk about 60.2 million dollars is is what they are putting forward on that and that's a big number which is going to impress some people i guess but the reality here is your answer is that's not enough to get the job done
3: yeah and that's not actually uh, an accurate reflection of what sexual assault centers get for funding so that 62 million dollars that they're talking about is for their victim services um Uh, portfolio so to speak but sexual assault centers are separate from victim services um, and we do get separate funding and so in reality the it's not 62 million dollars it would be around 14 million dollars but that would be divided amongst 42 centers across Ontario uh, for that core funding so sexual assault centers have historically been very underfunded um, and up leading up to the Me Too movement, they were quite strained. Um, they were in a really bad place. And I think that was initially, initially with the wind government, their response was to, okay, it's come to the point where the demand is significantly um, more than the capacity of these centers. We need to do something. We need to reevaluate the funding structure for sexual assault centers. Um, and unfortunately, with the cut to this one-time uh, additional funding. It seems that the Ford government is not interested in reevaluating how they fund us and how they support
0: survivors. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I want our listeners to be clear on that. I, the, the portion I just read here was from the government's own press release about this uh, that says the Ministry of the Attorney General of victim service programs, including sexual assault centers. Well, it's not including sexual assault centers. As you've just articulated, that's two separate funding sources and two different kinds of programs. But you notice mm-hmm. that they've tried to lump everything together in the one press yeah. release here to make Make it sound as if they're trying to cover all the bases but they're not
3: yeah exactly
0: well uh, here's hoping I mean we want to talk about this and we want to make sure that the government understands the ramifications of this and we've t- we've tried put some calls up to some of the other centers as well uh, what's your message though c- Catherine to people that are listening to this right now that that are living in abusive situations or have been sexually assaulted and and, and are looking for help right now do, do, what, what do you tell them today in the light of this announcement
3: in light of this announcement, I would say stay strong. Um, local sexual assault centers still care. They still want to be able to do this work, and they still hope to support you um, and to keep utilizing our services because as that demand grows, it's going to become unignor- unignorable on a government level.
0: Well, I got to feel that they're going to hear about this as well. I mean, as, as people find out that they can't access services, uh, and, and obviously the, the wait times are going to be a factor in this as well. There's, there's got to be some pushback, and I'm, I'm sure that we're going to hear stories from people that are simply saying we're not getting the help we need when we need it, and uh, that can put people mm-hmm. in a rather precarious position. So I, I think mm-hmm. what we need to do here, Catherine, is we'll stay in touch and, uh, and certainly uh, talk to some of the MPPs in this area, who I, I know are going to justify the government's decision. That's what they paid to do, I suppose. But yeah, uh, right. we have to put we have to put a human face on this, not just statistics. <laughs> but even on that level... Uh, the statistics indicate that there's a need for this, I and mean, uh, th- there's really no justification for this, and no rationalization for this that the government could really come up with.
3: Yeah, exactly.
0: Uh, Catherine, thank you so much for the time today, and uh, thank you for the great work that uh, that you and the staff doing at Savis of Halton right now. And I know that you're doing some reevaluation right now, if, uh, with you as I'm sure the other centers are right across the province of Ontario. And uh, hopefully, mm-hmm. hopefully, we can uh, see some sort of a reversal on this, and uh, make sure that the people that need help will get that help.
3: Yeah, I'm hopeful as well. Thank you so much.
0: Catherine Gibbons uh, from Savas. Thanks again, Catherine. We'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Uh, and we've talked uh, in the past with uh, Nancy Smith, of course, uh, from Universal House here in Hamilton and a number of other locations that are doing this service uh, right across the province of Ontario. And, and again, I go back to the CBC uh, survey that was done about this, and uh, it's it's troubling when you see the numbers. And there are actually people that are being turned away right now. I know that they don't want to do that. Uh, you knock on the door, you call Savas, and they don't want to say, we can't help you. Uh, there will do be, an, as we said, a, an initial intake. But then they simply say, well, you know, we'll get one of our staff to call you back in eight or ten months when we finally clear some of the, the other files that we're working on right now. And that's not satisfactory. And, and in some instances, and I, I know, and as I read that study, in other parts of the country, in Manitoba, I believe, is one of the ones that was the hardest hit by this, uh, they are actually turning people away. said, we we just can't do anything for you. I'm sorry. And and just imagine the, the, the message that gives to somebody who's been sexually assaulted and is looking for support and looking for some help and maybe making a, a very important life decision about where they're going to go and, and sometimes just packing up with their kids and getting the heck out of that dangerous situation and then being told that, well, no, you can't, you have to go back. Pretty scary stuff, isn't it? Uh, Anyway, we'll continue to track this, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk about uh, this in greater detail as we start to see the ramifications and exactly what has gone on.
2: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: I want to focus on what's happened in the last couple of days uh, when it comes to the Democratic primaries and what's happening in Washington, D.C., of course. We all know the history since... Uh, Joe Biden won big in South Carolina on Saturday, uh, and he parlayed that into a huge, huge victory on uh, Super Tuesday with uh, winning 11, I guess, of the uh, the primaries that were going on. But is this creating another rift in the Democratic Party? Uh, some are suggesting that this is going to be 2016 all over again, the uh, the Hillary-Bernie Sanders rift that was created there was probably a major factor in, uh, well, a lot of Democrats not showing up to vote on Election Day. Joining us to talk about this is Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, of course, is a Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. Uh, Reggie, thanks for the time. Glad you could join us today. Good morning, Bill. What are you hearing about uh, this down here? And I, I know they're all saying the right things in front of the cameras here, Reggie. That oh, no, we're going to unify behind the, the the Democratic nominee, whoever it's going to be. But we've seen this act before, and, and, and it, I think the, the comparison to 2016 here is pretty apt. I mean, I, I think that it is. Uh, I think,
2: though, you know, in terms of coalescing around the moderate uh, moderate Democrat, I think Democrats have learned their lesson from what they saw the Republicans do in 2016, in that they didn't go around the moderate candidates and the party kind of imploded. And they've been dealing with those consequences now for the last four years. I think in terms of Democrats, it's a tale of two different parties. You have the moderate Democrats and most of the party now standing behind Joe Biden trying to say this is going to be the way to bring everyone together. This is going to be the most inclusive thing. And then you have Bernie Bernie Sanders standing alone on the side, destroying the Democratic Party like he's been doing for the last four years with his words by saying that everything is too exclusionist when it comes to them and they're too being too inclusive in other things. And I simply think that the Democrats are going to look at Bernie Sanders and say, you look petty, you look small, you're standing off to the side and you are not actually being uh, the inclusive party the Democrats want to be.
0: Well, and the the accusation that anybody that's not Bernie Sanders is an elitist is maybe starting to wear a little thin with some people. Well, I think that it is, and I think that it could backfire
2: on him uh, when it comes time to primary calendars down the road and the general election. I mean, look, Bernie Sanders come, uh, has consistently said that if you're not with him, you must be a part of the corporate Democratic Party. You must be a part of the Washington establishment. But how do you think that's going to make somebody feel from South Carolina, who might have been uh, an African-American, who's a church-going resident, who believes in morals and believes in ethics, and they simply wanted to vote around somebody they see as the uh, person who can beat Donald Trump? And they have another Democrat looking at them saying, you're a part of the corporate establishment. I think that that could backfire on him in states uh, down the road that he may rely on those kind of votes from if
0: he wanted to beat Joe Biden. There are a couple of things at play here that uh, that I, I think have to be brought into the conversation that maybe some people down there are a little reticent to bring up. And, and that's one of the, I guess, basic promises that Bernie Sanders made when he announced that he was going to run again for the Democratic nomination was that he vowed and continues to vow uh, that he can bring people together, that, uh, that he can draw new people to the party and, and bring the disenfranchised people to the, to the party at the same time, uh, blue-collar co- workers, young people, etc. But, Reggie, the, the statistical story since the primary season started here is he has not done
2: that. No, he hasn't. He has brought some of those blue-collar workers in some of them. He has brought in the young vote. He has brought in some people who have found themselves to be disenfranchised from the Democratic Party. But at the end of the day, that is not a big enough group to give him any kind of uh solid momentum. And we saw that w- uh, play out on Super Tuesday. When it comes to ha- uh, casting a ballot, the younger population oftentimes is not motivated enough to actually go out and vote, whereas the older population, including the baby boomers, will go out and vote and they do have a fear of what Bernie Sanders policies are because they do fear that their savings could be put at risk. And I think that they are simply trying to say, you know, Maybe America needs to change, but we need to implement those changes slowly. And by blowing everything up with Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, the older population simply isn't going to go for it. And the young people say it's a great idea, but it's
0: hard to get them to actually go out and vote. But we're already seeing the pushback on this, aren't we, Reggie? And I, was, I obviously on social media, uh, a number of Sanders supporters are looking at what happened here and figuring they're getting dumped by the the, lib- the liberal democratic establishment here. Uh, hashtag rigged primary. I mean, which rings an awful lot like the Donald Trump uh, strategy from four years ago. Absolutely, it
2: does. And I mean, I was having this conversation uh, with somebody in the office earlier today that if you strip away the names of Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, oftentimes you'll hear the, the vocabulary and the language and the tone used, and they both appear to be the same because they're both trying to say that they're the outsiders, you know, not having anything to do with the establishment. But at the end of the day, in a two party system, the establishment is what has worked for the last, you know, good number of centuries. And that is what is going to continue to work until you slowly are able to erode away. So I don't I don't know if uh, Bernie Sanders uh, supporters using things like rigged primary or hashtag rigged DNC are really going to do anything to, uh, you know, bring his party into more unity uh, with the Democrats. But I do think that it's worth pointing out. We are potentially going to see 2016 replay itself because at the end of the day, like we said, the young people are the ones standing behind Joe uh, behind Bernie Sanders. If the young people aren't on board with uh, Joe Biden and what his policies are and what his future America looks like, they simply may stay home and not vote like they did in 2016.
0: Uh, Your observation is bang on. I mean, when you do look at the rhetoric Uh, between Trump, well, it's still ongoing, I guess, with Trump and what we're hearing from Bernie. I mean, Sanders has not said, I'm going to drain the swamp, but that's what he's insinuating. It's the same message, really. Of course it is. He wants to say, let's keep corporate America out of here. Let's keep the billionaires
2: out. Let's keep everyone who has had anything to do uh, with what he sees as making America fall apart, making the Democratic Party this kind of uh, slave to money. Uh, and he believes that's not working. Uh, th- this is the language that he uses. And much like in Trump world, where you have people using, you know, things like make America great again, keep America great again, fake news. We have the same thing on Bernie Sanders side, just with different words and different attacks and different people that they're going after. But it's that same kind of follow the leader attitude you have with these two outsiders with, you know, making their base fear that the status quo shouldn't be allowed to go forward.
0: The reaction that they're getting, uh, based on what happened since last Saturday, Reggie, is is interesting. And, of course, like, as you mentioned, the Sanders campaign is basically saying that the Democratic Party is is trying to nudge him out, and they're ganging up on him. But uh, when you look at all these endorsements that have come out, and, and I guess it started with uh, Jim Clyburn in South Carolina, uh, and on a coin, uh, Terry McAuliffe in Virginia, and the, we know the list now, Pete Buttigieg, and Amy komajar Beto O'Rourke, uh, Michael Bloomberg, uh, even Jennifer Granholm, the former governor of Mich- Michigan, uh, has jumped on the bin- bandwagon for Joe Biden, uh, and and that's important because that's a big primary that's coming up in just a couple of days as well. Is is it because they're trying to stop Bernie as as Sanders is, uh, insists, or is it just that they've realized that you know what? I don't think he- Bernie is the guy.
2: I think it's probably a combination of both. I think there is a fear that Bernie Sanders is simply still too far left and his policies may be uh, too radical for a country that is dealing with a leader who is considered to be too radical right now. And it might just be too difficult to try and put that all in motion altogether. But I think that there is still uh, a moment here to say Joe Biden has been the kind of person and the kind of candidate and politician who said that he is and has shown to be willing to work across the aisle. Joe Biden is said that he will work with Republicans, he will work with the people. People who were supporting someone like Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, who in no way were trying to run to be the same person as Joe Biden. They were trying to be that kind of uh, secondary, separate, moderate person. Uh, And I think that, you know. When you're looking at Joe Biden, he's saying, I can incorporate everybody's policies, everybody's backgrounds, everybody's uh, interests into my campaign. And you simply have somebody like Bernie Sanders who says, I stand alone. I don't want anything to do with any kind of inclusivity. All we want are to stand up and turn down the big corporate part of America that they
0: see is destroying politics. I mean, if the stated goal of the Democratic Party still is, and I sh- I'm sure it is, we need to get a candidate that can beat Donald Trump. If that's their mantra, uh, i got to think, Reggie, as they go through this primary process, that they're evaluating, especially with these two guys now the, in the lead, uh, which one of them can beat Trump. And, and I'm starting to hear a lot of rumblings. I wanted to get your read on what you're hearing down in Washington these days. Uh, are, are Democrats also looking at this and saying, "I don't think Bernie's the guy." Uh, you know, those it's maybe just a little bit too radical. And 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 it's not just Sanders himself as the candidate, as you've been reporting. Uh, what they call the down-ticket de- Democrats that are running for other offices, whether it's in the Senate or the Congress or or even state rooms. If you're a Democrat and Sanders is the candidate, they're very fearful about the ramifications.
2: Of course, they are because there's still a large part of America that doesn't represent uh, that doesn't identify rather as extremely or very liberal like uh, Bernie Sanders is, and if- If you have somebody like Sanders on top of the ticket, you run the risk of that Democratic voter walking in and saying, well, I can't support him. So maybe I don't want to support this House race. I don't want to support this Senate race. I don't want to support, you know, these local races where you have to vote everything in all the way down to somebody like the county coroner. And the Democrats run the risk of potentially losing the control that they have in the House or losing the possibility of gaining any kind of control in the Senate and handing it over to the Republicans. So there are ramifications down the line if you have someone like Bernie Sanders on the ticket. Who is uh, a fear factor for a number of Democrats? Uh,
0: there, there is going to be an isolation situation to this, against if, if Biden does become the the nominee, Reggie. Uh- it, it, I don't see that there's a place for for a, a guy like Bernie Sanders in in a, on the Biden team. I mean, obviously he wants his support and he wants his his the, the Sanders supporters to be there, but it's not, he's certainly not going to offer him the VP's job, nor would he take it, I guess. But uh, he just seems to be so different and so radical as opposed to what Biden is presenting right now. That's it's, it's a bit of an anomaly, but it's a pretty strong anomaly, be simply because of the the people that he can bring to the party.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, there were conversations that I was listening to on the radio this morning that were saying, you know, is there a possibility we could see some kind of Biden Sanders ticket? And I, I think that it would, it might be a hard reality to try and drive home to a lot of people simply because sure, Joe Biden might reach out and say, you know what, Bernie Sanders, I would like to see you in my administration or I'd like to see you uh, standing beside me on the ticket. But there's that secondary part of this conversation where people will say, there's no way that Bernie Sanders would take any kind of handout because A, he doesn't agree with the policies that Joe Biden has. But number two, there's a a good chance that somebody like a Vice President Bernie Sanders may try to work to actively undermine the Biden administration uh, on every step and turn with how they deal with US politics. They're just two very different people. And while it's good to incorporate those kind of uh, ideas into a broad administration, I just think that you'd be seeing two same sides of a magnet pushing themselves away from each other.
0: Po- campaign promises, are, uh, well, we're inundated with them, especially this time of year. And I know Americans are trying to sift through uh, what Bernie's saying, what Biden's saying, and what Elizabeth Warren is saying, and all the, the runs that are still left in the race. But is there any discussion at all in Washington about the political reality that no matter who gets the nomination, suppose it is President Bernie Sanders. Reggie, what are the chances of him moving on some of these agenda items, uh, as long as you've got the Mitch McConnells and Lindsey Grahams in the Senate? I mean, I think it's even, you know, we might even have to look beyond the Mitch McConnell's and the Lindsey
2: Graham's in the Senate, because what happens if we get a stronger Democratic hold across the Senate and across the House, or we maintain that Democratic hold across the House, and there aren't a number of Democrats that are in line with what Bernie Sanders' policies are? There is still a growing number and a good number of, of politicians in, in Washington who have a fear of what Medicare for all would A, do to the country, but B, cost, and what the ramifications of those costs would be, so who's to say that these policies that Bernie Sanders, if he were president, uh, were to put in place, would be actively endorsed by his own party uh, further down in the House and the Senate. I think that would further fracture this party, and you'd kind of see that uh, that same fracture that we saw in the Republican Party when Donald Trump became president,
0: and there were a number of Republicans who were fearful of what he would do uh, to policy in the U.S. Well, we saw that with uh, President Obama too, didn't we, Reggie, in his first term? I mean, he did, for a brief time, have a, a, a majority in, in, in Congress as well, and he tried to introduce that Affordable Care Act then, and he got blown out of the water, and it was Democrats that weren't going to support it. They were just a little too antsy about it.
2: It's true, and it's because President Obama did very little to actively try and work and bridge together this, you know, multiple fractures uh, inside the Democratic Party, and, you know, he he didn't get any of the benefits from being the leader of the party that was in the majority, and then you saw what happened. The Republicans took control, and they actively worked to undermine everything that Barack Obama did while he was in office. There's an opportunity for that to happen if someone like uh, Bernie Sanders became the president, and his own party simply didn't agree with it i think you would see it's there's a there's an opportunity you would see less of that with somebody like uh, a president joe biden because he has worked to uh, incorporate uh, anybody from within the democratic party and he does actually have uh, the kind of support from some moderate and uh lighter level republicans who say that he isn't all you know such a terrible guy or at least that terrible guy that president trump tries to make him out to
0: be what are you hearing about Elizabeth Warren? She's kept a pretty low profile after her disappointing showing on Tuesday. Uh, a lot of speculation about where she may go, whether she's going to stick around at least past Tuesday, I guess, of this week. Uh, what, what's the word in Washington these days about her?
2: Well, I mean, look, it's hard to see how Elizabeth Warren is able to continue going forward. She's hemorrhaging support. She's hemorrhaging money. Uh, it, it's, it's hard to see how she's able to keep boots on the ground, uh, in the states that she, you know, ultimately would like to try to win or at least take away some of that, uh, that vote for Bernie Sanders. But there were rumbles happening through Washington yesterday that, uh, that politicians who back both Warden, uh, uh Biden, uh, uh, Warren and Sanders, uh, were having conversations with her saying maybe it's time that you pull yourself out. Maybe it's time that you put your support behind Bernie Sanders, send the people who follow you behind the Sanders campaign. We haven't heard if anybody from the two campaigns themselves have been having conversations with each other, but you can imagine that somebody like Bernie Sanders is looking at Elizabeth Warren saying, sure, maybe you only have 7 or 8% right now of support, but that 7 and 8% could potentially give me that lift that I need to overtake this delegate count that Joe Biden got on Super Tuesday. So you can imagine that there is uh, hesitation, there's anxiety between these two parties, simply because Elizabeth Warren says she's in it to win it, despite the fact that she has yet to win anything.
0: Well, the backroom dealings, I guess they're going fast and furious right now, and we'll uh, as always watch for your reporting on Global National over the next couple of days, Reggie. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you. Take care. Reggie Cicchini, of course, uh, uh, Washington correspondent uh, for Global News, and uh, we'll watch his uh, reporting as to what's going on. But lots of shaking and bacon going on now, with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Uh, maybe there's a Stop Biden movement going on in one element of the party, too.